This is Fine Tuning, an examination of Mark Lewison's Tune In. An original series by Another Kind of Mind. Welcome to Shells and Barriers, Episode 4 of Fine Tuning. In this episode, we continue tracking the glaring disparity between John and Paul's characterizations in Mark Lewison's Tune In. It is universally agreed and understood that a person's childhood experiences impact who they become as an adult. And so, childhood is a crucial part of any good biography. Lewison demonstrates an understanding of this in Tune In by the way he reports, discusses, and philosophizes about Lennon's upbringing and early life experiences. John's relationship with his mother, Julia, his separation from her as a young child, and her death in 1958 are all described in fine detail and emotional language. And the lasting psychological effects of these traumatizing events are handled with care and compassion. The loss of Julia is also offered as an explanation for a variety of John's behaviors, including his loss of interest in school, his cruel language and behavior towards others, his violence, his drinking, his consumption of stimulants in Hamburg, his raging and jealousy towards Cynthia, and his reaction to the news of Stuart Sutcliffe's premature death. Paul's childhood, however, is comparatively brushed over. His childhood stressors and traumas are minimized or omitted outright. Even the reporting of his mother Mary's death is perfunctory and incomplete. The complex psychological effects of the unaddressed, underlying volatility in Paul's otherwise stable childhood, plus the loss of his mother, remain unknown. Tunin makes little to no effort to incorporate them into the bigger portrait of Paul's personality or behavior, and completely absent is any recognition of the darker side of Paul's relationship with his father, Jim. This episode will include two main lines of analysis. John and Paul's respective childhoods and the deaths of their mothers. We'll also discuss the overall family dynamics of their respective households. That will be sprinkled throughout. <laughs> like fairy dust. <laughs>
Chapter 2 of Tune In, titled Boys, covers the years 1945 to 1954, and it describes all four Beatles uh, in boyhood, and it alternates between them paragraph by paragraph. So you might get two paragraphs about Ringo, and then we'll say, at the same time, John Lennon was, and then you get a couple about John, and then we'll switch to George. Um, so it definitely took a little elbow grease to tease those out and get a word count on it for you. Um, and that that structure definitely explains why readers might not notice any disparity, because it's not like there's one big chunk of John and then a much smaller chunk of Paul. We're not suggesting Lewison did that to purposefully camouflage how much right. he was writing about John. Um, right. Just saying that th it is a side effect. Exactly, yeah. And I like it as a writing choice. I think it was the right call. Yeah, me too. Um, but I did go in and tease them apart. And in chapter two of TuneIn, titled Boys, Paul's childhood gets 3,325 words. John's childhood receives a total of 6,077 words. And if we add up chapters two through five, which cover the time prior to John and Paul meeting each other, we get 9,300 words for Paul and 15,579 words for John. As a side note, Ringo's childhood actually gets more attention and tune in than it is usually afforded in a Beatles book, which is great. Yay! Yeah. yeah. Yeah, plenty of detail and a lot of information that has not been widely reported before now, which is nice and refreshing. Yeah, for sure. Now, George definitely gets the least of the four. By far. By far. But somebody else is going to have to do the fine-tuning George edition <laughs> because <laughs> cause we already have our yeah. hands quite full. Yeah, yeah. I look forward to hearing that. Good luck to when whoever's I, doing that one. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to see the full word count breakdown of first five chapters of Tune In, feel free to visit our website, anotherkindofmind.com. So once again, John is definitely the main attraction. A popular explanation for this that we've seen among fans is the notion that there simply isn't information available on Paul's family and childhood. Yeah. Or that there's nothing of interest to report. <laughs> but neither of those explanations is sufficient or true there is plenty of information and interesting information on both paul's childhood and mary's death that is publicly accessible to us that lewison also has access to yeah lots of information from many sources that he actually uses for other purposes in tune in right but for whatever reason he didn't use the information on Paul's family, childhood, or Mary's death. Yeah. As always, we'll make it clear as we go along what sources we are pulling information from. But the problem with the childhood coverage is twofold. There's the disparity in quantity, but also in quality. So the quantity difference is pretty straightforward. We've given you the word counts. As far as quality goes what we'll be looking for in this episode are the most important elements of paul and john's respective upbringings are major issues and events identified and addressed and how are those issues and events utilized to develop a profile of these people as artists and as the men they will become and 
how is the reader guided to feel about it all? So before we begin, we'd like to offer a little refresher on Mark Lewison's criteria for including information. He said, I've always just had a sense of what I think the reader will want and what I think the reader won't want. And it's really based on my own parameters of where I'm interested and where I think, no, no, it's a detail, but it doesn't add anything. It doesn't take it anywhere. It's just a tedious detail, really. Let's build a stairway to the stars And climb that stairway to the stars With love beside us To fill the night with the stars Tune In presents Paul's childhood as stable, uncomplicated, warm, and supportive, and his home life as happy and safe. This presumably easy childhood is in striking contrast to John Lennon's, which is portrayed as tumultuous and scarring with specific long-lasting effects on his developing mind. However, while John's childhood receives great attention and sympathy, creating a well-rounded character study, the portrait of Paul's childhood is cropped and framed in a way that serves to flatten the reader's understanding of and empathy for Paul. Tunin's Paul McCartney appears to have everything anyone could ask for in order to succeed in life. On page 74, Tunin goes so far as to opine that... Paul's only real difficulty was when anyone told him what to do. Jim and Mary McCartney are presented as unfailingly kind and attentive parents who admirably modeled stability, decency, and love to their children. A warm and stable nuclear family happily situated within a larger network of supporting and fun-loving relatives. However, while we aren't disputing the many positive qualities of Paul's family, or the sincerity of his appreciation of them, there is a glaring omission in Tunin's idyllic childhood premise. Which is that Paul's childhood was unfortunately darkened by violence. So here is the entirety of what Tunin has to say on the subject of corporal punishment in Paul's house, from page 64. Home life was much steadier for Paul McCartney, now aged three, and also a natural left-hander, left unchallenged. Jim and Mary seem to have quickly established the kind of balanced domesticity experienced by only some families. Jim was mild-mannered, softly spoken, even-tempered, and attentive, if he was cross, he kept it inside. Mary, quiet, firm, presentable, respectable, was more serious, but also more demonstrably affectionate, though not overly so. She'd smack Paul or Mike if the need arose, but her biggest threat would be verbal. You'll get a smacked bottom from your father. I can't, I can't even deal with 
how this but her biggest threat would would just be verbal that's like saying but her bark was worse than her bite and it's like well maybe hers was but that is a big threat well it's it, still violence exactly. it's being threatened with <laughs> what well and it's not as if jim wouldn't follow through um yeah smacked bottom which is a quote from mike's book thank you very much is the absolute mildest way mike has ever described jim's corporal punishment that i'm aware of and mike talks about it a lot mm-hmm. usually he and paul use the words hit hiding of our lives bashed etc in portrait of paul mike wrote that on at least one occasion it was severe enough that Paul and I went to bed crying and lay with our heads on the pillows, sobbing bitterly. Jim used the word hit as well in the Hunter Davies bio. So, you know, a a smacked bottom, that's not what we're talking about here. Not only does Lewison's passage make light of the corporal punishment, it's pretty unsympathetic to the children. I mean, it's kind of on Jim and Mary's side, you know? Oh, yeah. If the need arose to smack them, she would. Well, and her biggest threat would be verbal. Makes it sound like it's an empty threat. Mm. Which it wasn't. Yeah, we don't get that connection at all. Her threat would be verbal. You'll get a smacked bottom from your father. No acknowledgement that that was no empty threat. And in fact, earlier in the paragraph, we're told that if Jim was cross, he kept it inside. And that he was mild-mannered and even-tempered. Which he probably was most of the time. Yeah, of course. But even a man who is mild-mannered, even-tempered, and soft-spoken in public can be violent inside his house. And it doesn't matter if Jim was a stand-up guy which I'm sure for the most part he was, that doesn't mean that the violence in Paul's house was deserved or didn't affect him or didn't hurt him. Yeah. And, you know, listeners might say, well, it's not, you know, it's not Lewison's job to be a psychologist or, or to psychoanalyze these people or look, or look for, the childhood traumatic roots of their behaviors but he does it constantly for john over and over again i mean there's minute detail paid not just to his childhood but to the ripple effects of his childhood yes throughout Mm -hmm. the book yeah let's let's stop that conversation before it even begins yes tunin regularly emphasizes how chaotic john's early life was so if it goes there for John, but doesn't for Paul, that clearly indicates that there must be nothing to see there. That Paul totally had it easy. Here's what Paul said on the record over the airwaves to Howard Stern in 2001. When Howard commented that Paul's childhood sounded perfect. 
But uh, no, they were great parents. Your dad really never called you a cool. moron over and over again repeatedly? Dad didn't, no. <laughs> no. Uh, Did know, they encourage you I'll in your what, musical talent? Yeah, because he yeah. was a musician himself. Uh, he, he, our house was the only one we could go to to rehearse. Wow. So he was cool. And he would sit in the other room kind of listening. But you know, it's funny talking about this sort of parents. And the thing is, we, he did used to kind of hit me occasionally like you know that was what they did in those days i'm glad to hear that not allowed to do it sounds like a fairy tale life yes yeah no but you know i was uh, you know it's not all great right i'll tell you what comes to mind though just the the memory of the one moment when i was about i don't know 16 17 or something and he came in with the usual stuff and he sort of just slapped me right and he said no 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 no, we have an argument he slapped me and I he said, slapped Paul McCartney. He slapped him. Yeah, he said, hey, man, do you know who I am? <laughs> yeah, right. No, I, that. So I just stood there, and it was like an amazing m- moment in my life. I said, go ahead, do it again. And it was like, and he just went. That was it. He couldn't do and it. he never did it again. Tune in does not include any mention of this pivotal, triumphant moment in Paul's life. A turning point where he broke free from the physical abuse of his otherwise loving dad. We don't know why this information is not included. Given that Paul has downplayed his dad's abuse his entire life, and this is, as far as I know, the only time he's spoken about it in public in any sort of detail, maybe Lewison thought it was in poor taste to sully Jim's memory. Maybe? Well... Maybe, but that's not his job to omit information that he feels would be in poor taste. We get plenty of salacious details about other, I mean, for God's sake, the way he writes about Brian's sex life. Yeah. I have no interest in protecting Jim's reputation by covering up his abuse of Paul. If Paul does, that's his business and his choice. I'm interested in Paul and how this issue informs his life, his personality, and his choices moving forward, all of which are extremely relevant to the Beatles. Clearly, Paul had a complicated relationship with his father. It's true that Jim was a devoted, present, and loving father, and it's true that he was respected by and admired by those who knew him. But it's also true that he hit Paul well into his teens. And that Paul did not like it. It occurred. And no matter how many times Paul says, I had a loving family and a perfect childhood, unlike John, he can't change the past, much as I'm sure he would like Mm. to. Yeah. I'm not arguing that Jim needs to be thrown in the trash or that every account of his kindness and decency was a lie. We don't need an either-or narrative. He doesn't have to be the devil or an angel. Humans are complicated. Jim can still be a great dad in many respects. But even parents we love and respect can damage us significantly. Yeah. It's very possible that Jim was doing the best he could most of the time. Or at the very least, he didn't have any better role models. Corporal punishment was a very common and accepted parenting tool in that era. Yeah. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Yeah. So uh, this is not a, we're not having a debate about spanking. Spanking was common 
as a form of discipline. Mm -hmm. But hitting a teenager in the face during a routine argument is not discipline. And also, if 16 or 17-year-old Paul has to confront his dad to stop the abuse, it was abuse. Correct. Paul called it an amazing moment in my life. Yeah. When he made it stop. When he made it stop, yeah. Yeah, and to me, Paul saying, go on, do it again, <laughs> sounds like a threat. Yeah, like a challenge. The challenge, yeah, yeah. I'm big enough to hit back now. Want to try that again? So if that's true, if it wasn't Jim's own sense of propriety finally kicking in that made him stop slapping his son, if he kept doing that right up until the first moment he feared reprisal, and then all of a sudden mm -hmm. he could control himself and <laughs> never did it again, then that's bad. Yeah. That's bullying. To keep him in line, maybe. Or maybe it was out of anger. Yeah, maybe he just lost his temper. Mm -hmm. Maybe he was on the outside and in his aspirations a very kind, gentle, mild-mannered person who nonetheless had anger issues. Yeah that unfortunately maybe only his kids really ever got to see but you know my old manner with occasional bouts of explosive anger is how paul is described well paul is criticized for being nicer on the outside than he is on the inside mm. so if you omit the fact that he was raised by a person like that then you preclude any empathy for that aspect of him so it's remiss not to mention lazy to perpetuate the tired cliche of lucky paul from the perfect family yeah if tunin isn't prepared to detail the violence in paul's home for whatever reason whether it's the assumption that no one cares or that it's too big a bummer or whatever the justification is that's one thing but even if it omits specific details of this ongoing abuse, or it doesn't have them and can't acquire them, even if that's the case, it is the height of negligence and disrespect not to even acknowledge that this relationship might have been complicated, or that this parent was ever anything less than kind and gentle, or even worse, to judge the child for using charm diplomacy, and yes, on occasion, guile, to avoid conflict with a violent parent. If you know that the parent is violent, even if you're not prepared to detail that in the book, you can't ignore it to the point where you blame the kid and characterize that parent as an indulgent dupe who, all things considered, was probably, if anything, too soft on this little manipulator. Yeah. That's not acceptable yeah and the really frightening part is like if you cannot empathize with an abused child like literally where do we go from here <laughs> is there any point where 
you're ever going to give Paul the benefit of the doubt? Is there any situation where he isn't the one at fault? Now, to be clear, Tunin never directly calls Paul manipulative or Jim indulgent, using those exact words. That is our interpretation of Tunin's characterization, and we stand by it. Here are some notable examples from the first 500 pages of the book. When describing Paul skipping school to hang out with John, Tunin reads, Subterfuge was vital. Paul was so keen to make himself indispensable to John that deceiving Dad was but the flimsiest of obstacles. That's page 18. Paul liked to create the best impression and say the right things, exuding a breezy confidence and wanting people to think highly of him. He was charming, sharp, mentally strong, and rarely outmaneuvered. That's page 19. Jim is quoted as saying, Paul always seemed to know exactly what he wanted and usually knew how to get it. Page 99. Which we already discussed as being used completely out of context. Completely, yeah. Uh, from page 288, Tunin reads, Jim was despairing. He did what he could to keep the leash on Paul's passive rebellion, but Paul was just so skilled at winning his way. Tunin then quotes Jim as saying, Paul just wore me down. This is about his hair, instantly. This is about his haircut. Paul's yeah. hair, his own hair. Yeah, right. Yeah. His own body. Yeah, poor Jim. <laughs> so on page 455, Tunin um, recounts in detail all of the <laughs> hoops acrobatics. All, yes all the acrobatics paul had to perform in order to get jim's approval to let him go to scotland with the band few greater illustrations exist of what the group meant to paul mccartney of his keenness his confidence in the power of persuasion and his instincts about how to win over his dad his ploy was complex then we get a two-paragraph description of Paul's ploy, which is pretty funny, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> and then, Tunin continues, Only if Jim McCartney was a mug could he have swallowed such deceit, and he was no such thing. Nevertheless, this latest battle with his eldest son ended quickly, and, like most others, in defeat and with a resigned shrug. So, again, what we are saying is that it is remiss and unfair to continuously characterize Paul, as all of the above quotes do, as deceitful, insincere, image and reputation conscious, using subterfuge and ploys, being unusually skilled at getting his way and persuading and maneuvering and winning over his dad basically just taking advantage of Jim's good humor and running circles around him all the time, and yet fail to make any mention of the fact that Jim is slapping teenage Paul in the face when they fight. Mm. To say nothing of whatever subtler forms of emotional pressure, guilt, control, or whatever Jim may have employed, which Paul has not disclosed. And again, all of that was within the first 500 pages. But this characterization most definitely continues throughout the book. 
TuneIn also points out many times Paul's seemingly contradictory desire to please and hypersensitivity to disapproval. Now, these are traits which deserve explanation every bit as much as John's verbal cruelty and violence, for example, which John gets in spades. So you'd think examining Paul's childhood would be just as easy, right? You certainly would think that. Yeah, a very complicated relationship with his father and possibly with his mother Mary as well. Uh, seems like the obvious place to start. Yet there is zero of that in TuneIn. Zero. Zero, yeah. Any definitive book on the Beatles should include basic biographical information on Paul McCartney. So let's review. Beyond the obvious surface descriptions, talented, smart, and funny, Paul's most striking and unusual personality traits are his excessive resentment of authority, his above-average diplomatic skills, his indirect or passive-aggressive approach to conflict, his staggering ability to hide his innermost feelings, Mm -hmm. his hypersensitivity to disapproval, and his outsized drive for external approval and success. Yes. Um, To me, it seems pretty clear that those traits and behaviors probably have roots in the way he was raised, the way he was disciplined, the way he was pressured to repress negative emotion, and how if he wanted to avoid getting slapped and hided, he had to be diplomatic. Mm -hmm. It's not normal for children to be overly diplomatic. That's a red flag. He's that way because he had to be that way. Well, yeah, and chronic traumas tend mm-hmm. to have an effect on someone. Yes. I, I, like, I literally don't know a single professional on earth who would say, yeah, chronic abuse has no effect on a developing child. I Literally nobody would ever say that. Well, especially if the child exhibits all of these traits. Tune in chalks all of those behaviors up to Paul's innate personality. Never, ever, ever is Paul's childhood, not even Mary's death, analyzed for clues as to the roots of these traits and behaviors. Why? Why would that be? Why did Lewison make that choice? Here's another big problem we discovered. Lewison, on page 33, opines that Paul didn't rebel as openly as John did, not because the consequences were markedly different for Paul, but just because Paul didn't want to spoil his good reputation. He writes on page 33, It was all irresistibly magnetic, but Paul's predicament never changed. His dad didn't approve. This wasn't going to stop him. But he loved his dad and valued his own good reputation too much to openly rebel like John. It made John mad, 
and all the more determined to be the troublemaker Jim said he was. Lewison then quotes John from the 1971 St. Regis interview, uh, the source of which, by the way, is given in a footnote, not in the text. He quotes John as saying, Paul always wanted the home life. He liked it with daddy and the brother and obviously missed his mother. And his dad was the whole thing. Just simple things like he wouldn't go against his dad and wear drain pipe trousers. He treated Paul like a child all the time, cut his hair and telling him what to wear at 17, 18. I was always saying, don't take that shit off him. I was brought up by a woman, so maybe it was different, but I wouldn't let the old man treat me like that. Okay. The problem with this is that Lewison omits, with no ellipses, what we believe is a vitally important line from this, this classic London rant. John does say the thing about drainpipe trousers, but then he adds this. And I was always saying, face up to your dad. Tell him to fuck off. He can't hit you. You can kill him. He's an old man. I used to say, don't take that shit off of him. Because I was always brought up by a woman, so maybe it was different. But I wouldn't let the old man treat me like that. So he omits the part about John mentioning jim hitting paul mm -hmm. number one people are always lecturing the abused not to take the abuse so thanks for nothing um <laughs> anyone yeah. can be brave hypothetically it's it's much different when the abuse is committed by your own family or someone you love sure and as john even points out he grew up without a father and was not physically intimidated by Aunt Mimi, so maybe it was different. <laughs> well, it was definitely different, John. John even acknowledges, fine, maybe it's some father-son thing I don't get. Right. Yeah, and it's not clear whether John actually knew that Jim did hit Paul. He might be saying, he can't hit you. What's he going to do? Hit yeah, you? meaning he wouldn't dare. That's ridiculous. It's not like he's going to hit you. Or maybe he's saying, don't let him let hit, him hit you. you yeah hit him back paul yeah you could kill him he's an yeah. old man you could kill him makes me lean more toward the interpretation that john knew about the hitting you could kill him is a bit much if john's just talking about haircuts here but it mm. would fit nicely if he's talking about violence yeah that's that's a good point fight fire with fire he's i mean it, when you think about it John is the only person who doesn't mm. speak kindly of Jim. That's interesting. John hates him. And there could be multiple reasons for that, but... Of course. Yeah, like, it could be a selfish reason, like, he's just mm -hmm. jealous, but it could also be a, you know, a less selfish reason, like, he doesn't like yeah. the way Jim treats Paul. Yeah. Yeah. But in any case, like, editing that quote with all those potentials do you know what i mean like mm -hmm. to make it just sound as if john is calling paul weak for not standing up for his own haircuts and, and yes trousers yes because paul values his own good reputation too much to openly rebel like john did well and lewison wrote the fact that paul wouldn't rebel made john angry like mm -hmm. is that what he's angry about like i don't feel confident in that interpretation 
Yeah, is he angry at Paul? Is he or is he angry at Jim? If you read the full quote in context, it's not clear to me. Any which way, our point is how Lewison deliberately edited this quote. He turned John's comment, I wouldn't let the old man treat me like that, into being about the triviality of trousers and haircuts. Yeah. At the very least, Lewison has again missed a perfect opportunity to acknowledge that Jim could be aggressive and violent. Why would he do that? Well, why would he want to? That means that in Tune In, we're missing a large contributing factor in Paul's development, coping strategies, and personality. It almost seems like Tune In goes out of its way not to tell us about Jim's corporal punishment, doesn't it? Well, at the very least, it's unusual that a book this thorough, supposedly, never reports anything besides the fact that as we read at the beginning, Mary would sometimes smack them if the need arose, or that she would invoke Jim verbally as a threat, with no acknowledgement that Jim definitely would and did hit the boys. So we checked a variety of books that were published prior to Tune In's published date of 2012, and Jim's corporal punishment is mentioned in all of the following. Hunter Davies' book on the Beatles from 1968. The Paul McCartney story by George Tremless. That's from 1975. Philip Norman's Shout, McCartney by Chris Salowitz. The Beatles by Bob Spitz. Thank you very much. And The Max, both by Mike McCartney, as well as Michael's essay, A Portrait of Paul. By comparison, Tune in, which does spend a fair amount of time detailing the conflicts between Paul and Jim, doesn't see fit to mention that corporal punishment was a frequent occurrence in the McCartney household. And yes, Paul himself consistently portrays Jim as a great parent. So, yes, to some degree, yes. he is complicit in. The idyllic childhood narrative. Well, here's what I have to say about that. Like, yes, Paul has said many, many times that he had a good upbringing and he himself even draws the comparison with John oh, to yes. elicit sympathy for John. Yeah. He uses it as a defense for John's behavior. So mm -hmm. you want to parse out why Paul does that? That's a different conversation. Okay. Paul is dedicated to protecting and defending both John and Jim. Yes. But yeah, he has gone on record many times saying he had an almost perfect or, you know, almost idyllic childhood and that he had a stable loving home. We're not disputing, number one, that he that he did have a stable loving home. But secondly, plenty of people downplay, suppress, or rationalize traumatic events in their own lives. And mm -hmm. that's not always a reliable or accurate assessment of their trauma yeah to give a good example ringo was quoted in rolling stone in 2015 saying i always thought i had a great childhood then a therapist told me well actually it sounds like you were abandoned and lived in a slum mm -hmm. 
So, you know, human beings are very capable of repressing or denying their worst memories or experiences. Absolutely. Ringo choosing to remember his childhood fondly says more about him and his choices and his coping mechanisms than it does about the actual harsh realities of his childhood. Yes. And they're particularly likely to do that if the people inflicting that trauma are people they love and who they know love them back, even if they're not perfect. Well, and who they have the power to have that person remembered in history as a great person. Mm -hmm. So the, any argument that like, well, Paul said it, it was good. So case closed, end of story. Mm -hmm. Like, really? I feel like authors, Lewis and included, have no problem picking apart other things that Paul says. They don't just yes. take his word on everything. Right. How many times have we heard that Paul rewrites history to make things seem sunnier and nicer than they actually were? Right. That's like, that's like the bargain basement most common tropes about him. Sure. But like, if not rewriting history, we do agree that across the board, Paul tends to highlight the positive, accentuate mm -hmm. the positive. <laughs> yeah. So why wouldn't that tendency apply to how he talks about his family and his childhood? John Lennon was very, 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 very unusual in how much he talked about his childhood trauma. Most people don't. Most people don't like to talk about it. Yes, and that was specifically after he went through a therapy that encouraged him to do so in 1970. Yes. True. Great point. The first time that Paul ever spoke about his father's abuse was directly after he had therapy yeah it's true and he hasn't brought it up since now from my point of view that is not proof that he wants no one to know about it and no one to write about it that to I me agree. if that's an indicator of anything it's that he's uncomfortable talking about it yes of course and to have his back he said it once on the record he's done his part yeah a biographer's part is to do the legwork there yeah yep it's not Paul's job to go over his traumas in public repeatedly. Mm -hmm. He's given yeah. you the information that you need. Well, that's actually a very common motivation for people not to speak about their trauma is because if they get crickets, that's awful. It confirms that no one cares that you were abused. And maybe it doesn't even matter that said i hope that listeners whose first inclination is to dismiss jim's hidings when paul was little as mere era typical punishment i hope hearing that jim went on to smack paul in the face into his late teens might help them be more open to the possibility that the hidings might also have been excessive even for the times i mean there are hidings and there are hidings, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's no way for us to know for sure, of course. But that would help explain why Mike talks about it all the time, if it was over the top. And I know this is going to be an uncomfortable uh, topic for a lot of listeners to contemplate because, for one reason, it's disturbing, but also because we've 
been so steeped in the idyllic childhood, idyllic parents paradigm for so long. But I hope everyone can make room for the possibility that that paradigm is flawed, or at least incomplete. Yeah. And think of it this way. What it doesn't change is the fact that Paul looks on the right side and Paul mm -hmm. is grateful for the good parts and that yes. Paul accentuates the positive. All of that, which we know to be true, remains the same. Mm -hmm. The only thing that changes is that the reality was not so nice. All the time. Yeah. All the time, exactly. And, you know, not for nothing, but Paul yeah. did take like a duck to water to being in a relationship with John, another person who had enormous redeeming qualities, but who could turn on a dime and be aggressive. Well, and also kind of explains why John scared a lot of people, but didn't scare Paul. Yep. He wasn't scared off. And he also thought, that's nothing. I can handle that. I got right. him. I got him. I can handle him. And was mm -hmm. extremely good at handling him. Yes. Why do we think that is? It's true that Mike and Paul don't speak about this issue quite as bluntly as we're used to hearing people speak nowadays about trauma and abuse mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But there are different factors involved in that and some of that is generational some of that is class stuff mm -hmm. you know not for nothing mike and paul were not raised to roll on their own family they sure weren't they love their dad and they want to protect their dad but that doesn't mean that they don't have the right or even the want to defend themselves also so what I'm saying is they can have competing interests. They can have the yes. self-interest of wanting to be seen and validated and yes. objecting to the way that they were treated and wanting somebody to care. Yes. But they can also, on the other hand, love and respect their dad and want to do right by him too. And or find it hard to talk about openly. Yes. Because it's painful. We also should not underestimate how much shame there is, especially for men yeah. and boys. Yeah. Obviously, there should be no stigma at all in, in disclosing stuff like this. There should be no shame. But there is. Mm -hmm. Yes. Especially for that generation. Great point. We want to share something from Mike's book, The Max. This is about Jim after Mary's death. Mike wrote, he, meaning Jim, just bit his lip and carried on day after day and night after lonely night. He could have beat us up, cracked up, got drunk, brought home women. He had every justification for doing so. But he just soldiered on until we were big enough to fend for ourselves. So Mike is telling us Jim would have been justified to beat up Paul and Mike. 
would have had every justification to beat up his children. Yeah. So, I mean, if he did anything less than that, they shouldn't complain, right? I mean, he didn't put them in the hospital. He didn't break their bones. Yeah. So they need to cut him some slack. Yeah, well, they they need to be grateful. They need to be grateful, exactly. He didn't abandon them. Yeah. He just soldiered on heroically. And if there was a slap here or there, well... It's we not deserved like you beat it. them up. Yeah. We could be right bastards. And there's also a quote from their uncle saying that they could be right little swine. So. So that's the message they're also getting from their family, from their extended yes. family. Yes. This is what Mike and Paul grew up thinking. This is how they were raised. Daphne, do you remember the story in Chris Salowich's book of when Mike was getting hit by Jim? I do. That story is also in Hunter Davies. Here's Salowich. Outwardly placid, Jim would not hesitate to punish an unruly son by giving him a good walloping, the threat of which was often invoked by Mary at times when Paul and Mike were approaching insurrection. Even here, Paul soon had figured out a simple way of coping with his father's wrath. Once, when Michael was being physically brought to order by their father, Paul, standing on the sidelines, demonstrated his fondness for the expedient solution. Tell him you didn't do it, he advised his bellowing brother, and he'll stop. I hate this story so much. And I've seen it interpreted as evidence for how sneaky and dishonest Paul was. I would just like to point out that here, baby Paul is giving away his sneaky ploy within earshot of Jim. So (laughs) either Paul wasn't very good at being sneaky or he was so upset by seeing Mike getting punished that he gave away his secret. So I would prefer this story never to be cast in terms of Look what a little sneak Paul was. Thank you very much. I mean, anything that you can do to aid your brother to get out of a beating should not be judged, first of all. Exactly. I mean, that's just insane. (laughs) Like, that's crazy. Yeah. As you pointed out, Daphne, most of the information about Jim's physical abuse comes from Mike. Yeah, the vast majority. So I think, to a certain extent, Mike's role is to give voice to some of the things that Paul can't say. Mm. Yeah, And I think that's partially why they are and have always been so close. Or vice versa. He and Paul are close and he loves him, and so that's why he's willing to be Paul's voice. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe paul's role is the protector and the secret keeper you know if mike is the voice paul's the secret keeper and i don't think paul wanted that job i don't think anyone wants that job no no one wants that job no it's just the one that he got his his job is to protect the family including his dad yeah and i think it made him good at burying things 
And it made him probably good at intuiting what people want to hear and giving it to them if it makes life yeah. easier. Exactly. And if Paul is loyal and protective of somebody that he had a complicated relationship with, but who he loved and who loved him, but who could become aggressive toward him and do things to hurt him, might that possibly be relevant to the Beatles? On the subject of brothers, we are concerned by Tunin's treatment of Paul's relationship with his brother, Mike. Over many decades, Mike has talked extensively about his brother, their childhood interactions, their brotherly conflicts, yes, but also their bond, which by all accounts endures to this day. Mm -hmm. And yet, there is not one single complimentary or warm or loving statement from Mike in all of TuneIn. About Paul, anyway. There are some mm. about John. In fact, it appears that no one loves Paul except for John, whose love for Paul is mentioned four times. For comparison, John is said to be loved by other people 15 times, Brian is loved three times, and Stuart Sutcliffe is loved nine times. But back to Mike McCartney. Tunin makes no mention of Mike and Paul's shared sense of humor, or Mike's admiration for Paul's talents, or of their abiding loyalty to each other. All aspects of the relationship which Mike has emphasized again and again over the years. For the purposes of this episode, here are just a few of the positive things Mike has said about Paul that could have been included in Tunin but weren't. Mike said, Sensitivity often goes with intelligence, and certainly I'd say this was true of Paul. He said that he and Paul were always very loyal to each other, that many's the time Paul came to his rescue in the play yard when he was being bullied, that Paul was so gifted he could play any instrument, that Paul saved his life, and that he and Paul got on very well together and shared the same sense of humor. What we do hear about in TuneIn is how Jim rigged up Mike and Paul's bedroom radio earphones because, quote, so great was their bedtime squabbling, on page 93, that Paul led egging our kid, Mike, into situations in which there could only ever be one casualty. It's page 87. That Mike was, quote, horrified, unquote, when Paul killed frogs and hung them on a barbed wire fence, page 98, that Mike would call Paul fatty on page 116, <laughs> <laughs> that when Paul was obsessively learning to play his first guitar, Mike said of him, he would get lost in another world. It was useless talking to him. I had better conversations with brick walls on page 205. That once when Mike and Paul sang a duet at a talent contest, this is a quote from Mike, 
as soon as we'd finished and Paul's confidence had returned, he shoved me off stage and went straight into his little Richard routine. Page 211. That in 1961, quote, the Beatles were still turning up late and missing their spot every now and again, mostly because of Paul. That's page 839. More on that in a future episode. That when Paul bought Mike a camera, quote, Mike would bluntly reflect, Paul didn't give a bugger about me and my photography. He just wanted photographs of himself. Page 961. Was he bluntly reflecting or was he comically or was reflecting? He roast, or was he roasting his brother? And on page 961, that when Mike started um, doing his surrealist performance art, I guess you could call it. <laughs> like walking around liverpool with a handkerchief stuffed in his mouth that paul suggested he stop it as it was getting embarrassing and you know we're not disputing that mike said these things we're just saying why is this all we get and we get none of the nice things squabbling horrified fatty useless talking to him Better conversations with brick walls. Shoved me off stage. Didn't give a bugger about me. Beatles were late mostly because of Paul. Paul told him to stop it and that he was embarrassing. This is all true. It's not, none of this is horrible. It's just every single time TuneIn talks about the relationship, it's never positive. Right. These are real quotes. But what's missing is that Mike loves to affectionately <laughs> roast his brother. And you can tell. I mean, A, they're brothers. Yeah. B, they're from Liverpool. And C, Mike was actually a comedian at one point in the 60s. Yes. Like, he, yeah, he never stops joking. No. No, and he's definitely a fan of using a dab of overstatement for humorous effect, as you will hear in a moment. Yes. So while this humor is evident, if you read Mike's quotes in full context, the way TuneIn edits them, you know, accidentally or not, makes them sound less affectionate. Yeah, if not outright critical. Again, you stack all those quotes up and it sounds like Mike doesn't even like Paul. And as Daphne said, there's not a single positive comment from Mike. Right. Balance it out. That's really the biggest problem for me. I can't think of any reason to do that. Yeah, it's weird. All right. So on page 87 to 88, we are told that Paul's home life was settled and he had a devoted playmate in his younger brother, Mike. Paul led, egging our kid, Mike, into situations in which there could only ever be one casualty. So on, on the one hand, devoted playmate is the one and only time TuneIn reports positive feelings between the brothers. So I guess that's something. However, stating that Paul led and egged Mike into situations in which there could only ever be one casualty, what does that mean? It means that Mike always took the fall for situations that Paul engineered interesting well that's very very strange in light of all the stories mike tells where they both reap the wages of their mutual stupidity <laughs> <laughs> there are many to name a few 
all readily available in Mike's Portrait of Paul essay and his book, The Max, we have The Great Apple Caper. Where Mike and Paul are stealing apples from a local farm until they get spotted and chased by farmhands. And Paul subsequently gets stuck on the gate like Peter Rabbit. <laughs> and Mike reports, I cleared the gate like a gazelle and was halfway into freedom when I heard a familiar sound. The huge farm lads had caught Brother Paul at the top of the gate. I don't know whether it was because of Paul's chubbiness or the heavy apples, but there he was, like a suckling pig with one arm being twisted behind his back. Come back, you lot, shouted the twister. Come back or I'll break his arm. Twist, twist, squeal. Being one of nature's gentlemen, I agreed to be caught. What? But, but, <laughs> but only if you let Paul go. We were slung into a potato-smelling outhouse and plunged into darkness by the banging Ugh. and bolting of a large wooden door. Gross. All right, so there's so there's that one. That's from the Max, from Mike's essay Portrait of Paul. There's also the Lime Pit fiasco. <laughs> One day we found a lime pit, which had filled with rain and turned into a small pond. Some workmen had left a plank balanced across it. Oh, God. And needless to say, we had to walk across it. But who was going first? You'd have thought there were sharks in that old lime pit. Go on, you go, Paul, I said, not liking sharks. <laughs> no, you go, he urged. After all, if you fall in, I can always pull you out. Paul wasn't so simple, really. He only gave that impression. <laughs> Of course, they choose the dumbest possible option and both go across the plank uh, at the same time. Yeah, so needless to say, the plank wobbles and they both fall in and neither of them can run for help. Uh, so they're in the water. Mike helps Paul to stay afloat until someone hears their cries and comes to rescue them. Well, that was lucky. And finally, the beehive tobacco. This is going to be stupid, isn't it? It's going to be the most stupid. <laughs> Opposite our house was a bit of a waste ground, and somebody decided he'd keep his bees there. When Paul, ringleader of our bunch, saw the hive, he decided we'd find out what was inside it. <laughs> Daft though we were, we had enough sense to circle warily about the hive first. Yeah. Paul must... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> good <Genius>. job. <laughs> yeah. Paul must have suddenly got a few brains from somewhere because he decided not to go any nearer. Then his brains must have fallen into his boots because he yelled, "Let's stone it!" That did it. As a shower of bricks knocked the hive spinning, a swarm of angry bees suddenly emerged oh, and shit. bombed their way towards us. We all bolted, all except Paul. That is, I heard him yelling and turned to see him beating the air like crazy. I think the bees picked on him because of his long hair. Even in those days, it looked like a baby mop. Mike rushes back to help him, and he writes, We'd been stung perhaps a dozen times each, so it was no joke. Hmm. So there you go. Uh, three examples not included in TuneIn that prove there was definitely not only ever one casualty. Hmm. So I don't know why you would write that. I think it's fair to say that perhaps Lewison was trying to make a joke. I think so. I think it's supposed to be kind of tongue-in-cheek. Mm -hmm. Although, as always, Paul is the butt of the joke. Mm. 
But anyway, I think we have sufficiently demonstrated that there definitely was not only ever one victim. Paul and Mike both almost drowned. They both got stung by bees and they both got caught by farm laborers and thrown into an outhouse. So, you know, they love each other. They're friends. You wouldn't know that from TuneIn. You would have no idea that they even yeah. like each other. Oh, please lend your little ear to my plea. Lend a ray of cheer to my plea. Tell me that you love me too. So, how does TuneIn handle John's childhood? Well, like we said earlier, pretty thoroughly, very lovingly. Definitely with great care and consideration for the stressors and trauma of John's early life. So let's take a look, starting with his earliest years. So John's father, Alf, was a sailor, and he had to report for duty shortly after John was born. In spring of 1943, when John was still a toddler, he returned home and stayed with Julia and John for approximately two and a half months before returning again to sea. And that was the longest stretch that John, Julia, and Alf ever lived together. After Alf leaves again, he loses contact with Julia and she begins to basically live life as a single woman. She gets a job as a barmaid, and she begins to date other men. On page 58, Lewison writes, Alf's next absence was much longer, because Alf got himself into trouble. First, he deserted one of his ships, and then, on his next voyage, he was arrested for possession of broached cargo, landing up in a naval court in Bone, northeast Algeria, where he was sentenced to a month in prison. The following November, when Alf knocked on the door of 9 Newcastle Road, it was 18 months since he'd gone away. Give us a kiss, appealed the guileless whacker, suggesting his long absence could be put behind them with a kiss and a cuddle and a roaring great yarn about Algeria. But Julia stopped him short and announced, I'm in the family way. Out tumbled a tale to explain her pregnancy. She was two months gone by Taffy Williams, and a domestic scene blew up involving all parties, which the four-year-old John witnessed and would remember, but never fully understand. Mimi watched ever more anxiously from the sidelines, concerned about the impact of events searing into her nephew's fertile mind. Okay, so we don't know specifically what Lewison means by a domestic scene, he doesn't indicate violence and we have no information to suggest violence so presumably this was a shouting match probably a nasty one if john remembered it what's Perhaps. the source tune in gives for john remembering it it doesn't give one okay well that's maybe. weird it is weird but in any case, you know, maybe baby John heard some nasty names hurled at his mom that he didn't understand at the time. Sure. Definitely not a good family memory. 
One thing that's notable is where Lewison debunks the mythical story of five-year-old John chasing Julia down the street after he is forced to choose between his parents. The story goes that John's father, Alf, suddenly showed up out of nowhere and treated John to a fun absentee dad weekend in Blackpool. <laughs> and at the end of that weekend, Alf and Julia couldn't come to an agreement on custody. So basically forced John into a Sophie's choice between his parents. And John, who had just had fun at, in Blackpool, initially chose his dad. But then once Julia just gave up and started walking away, he changed his mind and ran to her. And then she abandoned him to Mimi's care shortly thereafter. That has been the story for decades. It's it's the story Alf Lennon himself told in 1967 and the one that John apparently believed and absorbed into his internal biography for all the time that he was alive. However, Lewison tracked down a friend of Alf's at whose house Alf and John were staying that weekend, who reports that none of that actually happened and that Alf had no intention of raising John, making it much more likely that Alf's version that he actually wanted John and tried to be a stand-up dad, but John actually rejected him, was self-serving nonsense, told after Julia's death when she was unable to dispute it. Even though this discovery hinges on a secondary source, and so it isn't exactly airtight, it does ring true. It makes way more mm -hmm. sense, and it's a great example of Lewis really going the extra mile to find potentially important information about John's life. Or, I mean, some people might say it's trivia, since it no longer has the potential to change John's point of view. But if it's the truth about what happened with his parents... I think it has value. Definitely. Of course, it's sad to think about how if John had lived long enough to learn the truth, this information may have impacted him as an adult. Yeah. And how he thought of his childhood or how he processed all of this with his parents. Well, sure. John thinking that his mother gave him up on a whim that's awful. Shame on Alf. Trash. In the boys chapter, which again is the chapter that covers all four of the Beatles' childhoods, Lewison also covers in minute detail how in the spring of 1946, Julia moved in with Bobby Dykins to a one-bedroom flat with one bed. Uh, John slept with Julia and Bobby, which obviously was awkward. And not ideal. Yeah, and potentially traumatizing. Potentially. Maybe. Potentially. Yeah. yeah. If they were having sex while John was in the bed with them, which we don't know that they did, Lewison writes on page 65, considering with what fervor and frequency newly cohabitating couples usually enjoy sex, John's intimate exposure to such a situation was truly shocking no matter how discreetly the adults may have been behaving. I personally think there are a lot of assumptions <laughs> baked into that statement. Well, definitely. I mean, for one, there are plenty of times and places to have sex other than in the bed at bedtime. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, your mileage may vary slightly on how discreet is sufficiently discreet, but I don't think we can just assume Julia was in the habit of fornicating next to her five-year-old son because she was dating someone new. And young parents have been fighting opportunities to have sex with limited privacy for time immemorial. Yeah. So to me, it's kind of weird just to assume that there was intimate exposure being committed. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we have evidence of that, I definitely important to know it. Definitely. If we know, if we know something happened. I mean, to me, the most concerning thing is that she's allowing a near stranger to co-sleep with John. Mm. That mm. seems very irresponsible. Though perhaps I'm looking at that with modern eyes, aware of statistics that were not available back in the day. I don't know. Well, I mean, theoretically, she's sleeping between them. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, theoretically, John is well in her yeah, protective but she... arms. But but yes, take your point. Yeah. Yeah. Just from a precautionary standpoint, it makes sense why Mimi was like, uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> we could probably all agree that it wasn't ideal so in any case um mimi called the authorities and had john removed into her temporary custody with uncle george at menlove avenue now lewison deftly avoids passing judgment on either mimi or julia for this decision yes which is appropriate yes so props to him for that yeah you know i i think most listeners will be aware that little julia tells a very different story than mimi does yes this is kind of a contested issue it within the family yeah um which is unsurprising but um you know i feel like lewison does his best to sort of sidestep blame Mm -hmm. which is good So once John is set up at Mamie's house, she and her husband, George, provide John with a stable home. Now, here are five examples from the boys chapter of how Lewison tells us John's childhood is affecting him adversely. On page 65, this is how he sets up Julia moving in with Bobby in 1945. John's gifted and lively mind was set in perpetual whirl by the adults around him. Problems beyond John's ken and control had been hurtling at him since the womb, and now came the decisive episode. What are the events that hurtled when he was was in the the womb? I don't know, because Alf and Julia had like a quick courtship and then like they got married he knocked her up and then he went to sea and it was pretty quick and i don't know what was traumatizing about it maybe just being born into a home without a father there mm. on page 70 young john now in mimi's care is described as having suffered emotional earthquakes on the next page mimi george and six-year-old john sit for christmas portraits at a department store and lewison comments that 
there's a physical ease about John Lennon here that is extraordinary considering his stormy life. Also on page 119, John had experienced much seismic upheaval in his life. And finally, on page 129, TuneIn describes teenage John having moments of emotional turmoil in Julia's presence. Yes. So TuneIn reminds us several times of the domestic upheaval of John's childhood and also of that upheaval's long-reaching effects. So let's talk about John and Mimi. Lewis definitely understands that parent-child relationships can be complicated. And I appreciate a lot of how he characterizes Mimi. Mm -hmm. For example, he writes that Mimi was fierce, stubborn, openly snobbish, pointed, bluntly uncompromising, nobody's fool. And John was never not aware of it and always gave back. Though she might suddenly break into a Charleston dance to make him laugh, which he often copied, she was never demonstrative in her love, concealing it behind a coded series of verbal scoldings. She never hit him. Her worst punishment was to ignore him, because he always had so much to say that needed to be heard. When she did, he'd plead, Don't nor me, Mimi. So that, in my opinion, is a good way to write about a complicated, sometimes spiky parental figure who's doing their best, but who is flawed and behaves in ways that, you know, impact and sometimes hurt the child. And I think it's noteworthy that there's no, Mimi would ignore John when the need arose, like there mm. is when TuneIn describes Mary smacking Paul and Mike, when the need arose. Instead, this framing is clearly empathetic to John. Mm -hmm. Lewis writes, John always had so much to say that needed to be heard, which is why ignoring him was the worst punishment, and that he'd plead for Mimi to stop ignoring him. So we're on John's side here. 100%. Yeah. As we should be. Yes. And yes, Mimi's upbringing of John is definitely important to his character and personality. Of course. Mimi is most certainly a strong, visible character in this book. As she should be. As she should be. All right. Well, what about Julia now? Well, the coverage of Julia in TuneIn is complicated. There's a lot written about her. She's definitely highly sexualized. Yeah. I mean, Lewison does mostly credit her so-called living in sin with Bobby to her liberal outlook and general joie de vivre. I mean, she's sort of painted as a free spirit who likes to have fun and is sexy and sexual other than that we don't really know anything about her because presumably it's not really important it's like always the main takeaway with julia is that she's attractive and sexy well she's a manic pixie dream girl basically yes i mean if this is 
people's main impression of her that's one thing and that is what it is but does it need to be reiterated over and over and over again i'm not sure but you do get the feeling that like paul's life was less sexy and exciting and rock and roll because he didn't have a sexy rock and roll mom i'm serious and also that manic pixie attractiveness is sort of inherited by john in this book like this is where john got his sexy magnetism so from page 127 julia was very much the girl of john's dreams she was still the kicker of convention and bucker of trends she'd been all her life and at 41 was simply an older version of himself like him in drag irreverent iconoclastic uninhibited witty with a huge personality and a wicked sense of fun i would just like to say to mr lewis and like don't don't write these things <laughs> everybody gets it he's using the weird metaphor that john used for yoko for in yoko whatever yeah. year that she was like a bloke in drag and that's why he was attracted to her yes but that was weird and and kind of problematic too just because john said it doesn't mean it's brilliant and it definitely doesn't mean that you need to be using it in 2012 much less writing it in a book you're talking about a grown woman who gave birth to this boy she's not a drag version of her own son what i was about to say like isn't john john a version of her john could in theory be a drag version of his mom and also <laughs> calling julia the girl of john's dreams is weird i mean again if if you were direct quoting john or something by all means please do exactly he more or less writes that everybody wants to have sex with Julia. So why? Okay. I don't know. It me. It's important to him. Well, it's important to a lot of Beatle authors. It's kind of like a tradition. Lewison does include on page 129, the awkward entry from John's audio diary in 1979, wherein John describes touching Julia's breast as a teenager. Lewison writes that there were moments of emotional turmoil for a strongly sexual 15-year-old boy in the company of a woman who had a history of liberality uncommon in her time. What? A woman aware of her effect on men. A woman he knew to be his mother, but didn't always act like it. Kind of suggesting that as a hormonal adolescent boy, John may have sometimes been a bit sexually confused in her presence. He treads very lightly here, which is probably wise. Mm -hmm. The less said, the better, probably. Um, but I do appreciate that he included it. I'm not thrilled about the line, you know, aware of her effect on men, but oh, I'll let it go. John also told his journal that he walked in on Julia and Bobby once as a teenager. I mean, that happens. <laughs> We've all been there, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe not all of us, but many of us. 
that's not referenced in Tuna. Yeah. Which obviously I'm sure was unpleasant, but you know, that happens. Well, either it was unpleasant or it was sexually exciting. I mean, in defense of, of <laughs> teenage boys, it it's pretty typical for them to get of inappropriately course. sexually excited. Of course, just, just the reminder that sex and bodies exist. exist? Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's not their fault or it's involuntary and yes it's and it happens in any case uh what's heavily emphasized in tune in is julia's vivacious beauty and her free spirit and her flirtatiousness Let's take a look now at how Toonin handles John and Paul's greatest shared childhood trauma, the loss of their mothers. Mary's death, from initial diagnosis to the end of the topic, not to her death, to the end of the topic, is 2.5 pages, 845 words. Julia's death totals 7 pages in length. 2,537 words. Hmm. The portions that mention John specifically account for 1,326 words. So John's specific portions of Julia's death far outnumber the number of words that are spent in totality on Mary's death and the effect it had on all her family. In the rest of Tunin, Mary is mentioned five times. Julia gets mentioned 20 times after her death. As we mentioned before, we often hear people claim that there just isn't information on Mary's death, but that's just not true. We have plenty of publicly accessible information that was not included in Tunin. It's true that, at least until more recently, in later adulthood, Paul simply hasn't talked as much about Mary's death as John did about Julia's. However, the coverage of Julia's death in Tune In is not seven pages of direct quotes from John. Right. Obviously, it's information and insights culled from a variety of sources, along with Lewis's own reflections. Yes. So the argument that the information is just not available is not persuasive to us. So once again, quantity-wise, there's no discussion needed. We have the facts. We have the math. Julia's death gets more than twice as much coverage as Mary's and four times as many post-death references. But let's take a look at quality. If there isn't as much information on Paul's life as there is on John, that's one thing. But we should still expect the quality to be equitable. Starting on page 154. Breast cancer had been diagnosed. Jim knew the score, but adhered to Mary's wish that Paul and Mike not be told. Mum was the word. 
The closest either came to finding anything amiss was when Mike investigated a curious sound coming from his mother's bedroom. He said, I could just hear this strange noise. It sounded like crying, so I went into the room, and there she was, doing her rosary beads. I said, What's wrong, Mum? And she said swiftly, Nothing, son. She knew what was happening. Mike assumed she was crying because he and Paul had been naughty. We could be right bastards, he says. Hmm. But then it all just happened so fast. The cancer had already spread, and Mary went into the David Lewis Northern Hospital on October 29th very poorly with a brain tumor. Paul and Mike visited, though still not knowing what was wrong. Mary put on a brave face, and they never saw her again. They were packed off to Park Lane, Aintree, to stay with Uncle Joe and Auntie Joan, and couldn't understand why this customary venue for the McCartney clan's uproarious New Year's Eve parties was so subdued. The boys loved Joe for his great Liverpool humor, but even he was quiet. Paul and Mike slept in the same bed and wondered what on earth was going on. The end came two days later. Jim put his hand on Mary's cheek, and she said, Jim, I love you. She told her sister-in-law, Dil Mohin, I would have liked to have seen the boys growing up. Rosary beads were tied around her wrist, a priest administered last rites, and she died. Wow. wow. I mean, maybe he's trying to go for effect by, with minimalism. That's not his style in the rest of the book, though. No. Well, it just sounds. It just sounds like, like Wikipedia. Yeah, it sounds very cold. Well, I guess that gives information. There's not really in any context about what oncology was like at that time. Did she receive any special treatment because of her nursing? Like, did she know the doctors? Did she know the nurses? Was that a hospital she had worked at before? Mm hmm. What did a mastectomy entail at that point? Like, yeah, was chemotherapy a thing at the time? Mm. Uh, it was. It was basically mustard gas at that point. But as far as I know, Mary didn't get any. She got an emergency mastectomy, but by that point, the cancer had spread. And apparently, TuneIn reports that she went to the hospital very poorly with a brain tumor. What does what does that mean? If someone's very poorly with a brain tumor, that suggests that there are noticeable neurological symptoms occurring. Well, and I would also like to know, what did she look like? Like, what did the children actually see? That's important. Where's the yeah. story about Paul seeing blood on the sheets? Right. And then there's also the story about one of their aunties inspecting them before they went mm. into Mary's hospital room for the last time. Right? Yeah. Making sure they were all clean and scrubbed. Yeah. That is from Spitz. And here's the quote from Auntie Dill. She said, Jim rang me up that afternoon and said, I'm bringing the boys to see you, Dill. I'm taking them to see Mary for the last time. I've put clean shirts on them. They've got on their best clothes, their school ties. Their fingernails are clean. So are their teeth. Would you look them over for me? If they pass inspection with you, they're all right. Okay. 
so we're training these children to prioritize duty and appearances i mean are they ever allowed to experience their own feelings mm -hmm. or does this family put a very high premium on appearing respectable put together happy yeah no matter what's going on and might that be relevant to paul mccartney's personality and way of dealing with trauma and conflict earlier we mentioned how paul saw blood on the sheets of mary's hospital bed Here's the quote from his authorized biography many years from now, which Tunin quotes many times, but not in this case. Paul said, I remember one horrible day, me and my brother going to the hospital. They must have known she was dying. It turned out to be our last visit, and it was terrible because there was blood on the sheet somewhere. And seeing that and your mother, it was like, holy cow. And of course, she was very brave and would cry after we'd gone, though I think she cried on that visit. But we didn't really know what was happening. We were shielded from it all by our aunties and by our dad and everything. How in the world does this not make it into Tune In? How in the world could you leave out those details? And the detail that the day she went to hospital knowing she wasn't going to be coming back, that Mary cleaned the house and laid out the boys' clothes for school before she left, in spite of being poorly with a brain tumor, as well as breast cancer, so. And and, and still refused to say goodbye, mm -hmm. even on her deathbed. I mean, I mm -hmm. think Mary's stoicism to the point of dysfunction is highly relevant. Yes. Yes, it is disturbing. She worked until she died. And then pretended she wasn't dying. Yeah. To her kids. Her aversion to showing any vulnerability yes. to her children. Yep. That's so important to Paul's character. Mm -hmm. You know, as we've discussed on our show before, Paul definitely idolized his mom. And again, like Paul's threshold for stoicism is unhealthy. Insane. Yeah. No, it's it's out of control. His control is out of control. People are happy and, and quick to point out, you know, Paul's control issues or his, you know, unwillingness to discuss his emotions or whatever. We don't even get into those details about Mary and TuneIn, let alone connect them to Paul's behavior no remind us how does tune in describe paul and mike's final visit to mary in the hospital paul and mike visited though still not knowing what was wrong mary put on a brave face and they never saw her again daphne could you share with us how tune in concludes its section on mary's death and the effects it had on her family. So continuing from where we left off. Jim broke the news to the boys. Mike, who was especially close to his mother, 
burst into tears, a core part of him shattered irrevocably. Paul's response was less expected, and not at all what Jim or anyone else wanted to hear. He would say later, Mom was a working nurse. There wasn't a lot of money around, and she was half the family pay packet. My reaction was, how are we going to get by without her money? When I think back on it, I think, oh God, what? Did I really say that? It was a terrible, logical thought, which was preceded by the normal feelings of grief. It was very tough to take. Paul and Mike stayed with Joe and Joan McCartney several more days. They didn't attend their mum's requiem mass or committal, even though they took place on a Saturday when there was no school. Eight years later, Mike looked back with candor on those first few days, reflecting on how he and Paul both felt the important thing was to show their cousins they weren't, quote-unquote, softies. He referred to his brother's comment about the money, saying, Paul made some flippant remark which sounded pretty callous at the time, but he also added, Paul was far more affected by Mum's death than any of us imagined. His very character seemed to change, and for a while he seemed like a hermit. He wasn't very nice to live with at this period, I remember. He became completely wrapped up in himself, and didn't want people breaking in on his life. Tune in then continues. Paul's way of dealing with the crisis was to seem unaffected by it. He just carried on. He would say, I learned to put a shell around me. Tough as it was to see or hear his dad crying, Paul got his head down and pushed forward. Okay. So, obviously, Lewison includes the how are we going to get by without our money quote, which is good. Obviously, you want to of include, course, yeah. that, include that. Paul's recollection, it was a terrible logical thought, which was preceded by normal feelings of grief, explains what's happening here. But I really do feel like this deserves a little bit more. Having a so-called logical thought at terrible tragic news is a defense mechanism. Of course. Of course it, it is. His first reaction is not logical. His first reaction is terror. Yeah. This is a way of psychologically protecting himself. Mm -hmm. But to leave it like that makes it sound like, wow, Paul really was cold, even at 14. Mm -hmm. I mean, eventually his human feelings kicked in. Well, I'll tell you a couple things I do appreciate about this. Uh, that he partially quotes Mike to counter the flippant and callousness of the remark. He says, but Paul was far more affected by mom's death than any of us imagined, quoting Mike there. Uh, I appreciate that. And I appreciate that a little further down, Lewis justifies Paul's financial concerns, saying Paul's concern over how the family would manage without Mary's money was real. And then he summarizes kind of the the dire straits the cotton market was in and that Jim was, you know, how much Jim was bringing home, which was not very much. So he, he does give Paul some validation. Okay. It's good information that like financial concern was legitimate. And so I guess, thank you for 
providing that information. But in defense of Paul's concern over money, he had the right to be concerned. That completely misses the point. You're perpetuating the idea that like the money was actually Paul's primary concern instead of a way of protecting himself. Yeah. I agree that it is a legitimate secondary concern. I just not that material concern outweighs the emotional effects of her death. Yes. As is shown by Mike's testimony of how deeply Paul's behavior changed. Paul didn't, in Mike's words, go into a deep blue hermit sort of mood because of money. Mike is on the record in his Portrait of Paul essay for Woman magazine in 1965, and he gives us a lot of details. Details which are not only important to the topic at hand, Paul's childhood and his reaction to Mary's death, but also to his identity as an artist, his becoming a musician, and the formation of the Beatles. Here's the rest of what Mike has to say about this pivotal event in Paul's history and in Beatles history. About the what will we do without her money comment, Mike says, of course, Paul didn't mean it, but as the eldest, he felt he had to say something, and what he said was just silly. I know he could have bitten his tongue immediately after. Paul seemed interested only in his guitar and his music. He would play that guitar in his bedroom, in the lavatory, even when he was taking a bath. It was never out of his hands except when he was at school, or when he had to do his homework. Even in school, he and George Harrison used to seize the opportunity every break to sit and strum. Time after time, when I came home from school, I would find that Paul hadn't done his chores. I would go looking for him, and sometimes I would find him, up in his bedroom, perhaps, sitting in the dark, just strumming away on his guitar. Nothing, it seemed, mattered to him anymore. He seldom went out anywhere, even with girls. He didn't bother much with any of his friends, except his schoolmate George Harrison and John Lennon, who was at the art school next door. Work and work alone, his school books and his guitar, appeared to be the only thing that could help him to forget. Why is that not in tune in? If you're writing the Beatles biography, and you're writing about the death of Paul's mother. Why do you not put that in? Why do you only put in the quotes from Paul's brother that include the word flippant, callous, wasn't very nice to live with, and wrapped up in himself? Why? And remind me, which quote from Mike about Paul learning guitar did Lewison choose to include? He chose this one. Mike said, Paul would get lost in another world. It was useless talking to him. I had better conversations with brick walls. That's page 205 in Tune In. The source is Mike's book. Thank you very much. Mike also spoke on this in the Hunter Davies bio. He's quoted as saying, it was just after mother's death that it started. It became an obsession. It took over his whole life. You lose a mother and you find a guitar? 
I don't know. Perhaps it just came along at that time and became an escape. But an escape from what? Well, from grief, certainly, but also possibly from guilt. In many years from now, Paul says, She was great. She was a really wonderful woman and really did pull the family along, which is probably why, in the end, she died of a stress-related illness. She was, as so many women are, the unsung leader of the family. Barry Miles then adds, Paul dealt with his grief by focusing his attention on his music. Childhood friend Tony Bramwell wrote in his book, I miss her. The house feels empty, Paul said. He didn't say much more than that, but at times he looked lost and quite vulnerable. It was roundabout then that you would often see him bicycling off to the woods and fields or along the shore with binoculars to watch birds for hours on his own. Music helped Paul compensate for his loss and he threw himself into it. Around this time, Paul writes what he usually refers to as his first song. It's called I Lost My Little Girl, which even Paul has said, oh yeah, putting two and two together, that's totally about my mom. I didn't realize it at the time, but of course that's what he does. Of course. <laughs> if anyone can be trusted to sublimate their negative emotions into an upbeat song. Yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds like him. Tunin does tell us Paul and Mike weren't allowed at the funeral, even though it was a Saturday, which is good, though it would have been nice to get some comment about how we know that's actually very hard on kids and how it's very clear Paul and Mike were not allowed to grieve. On that topic, here's a quote from Dusty Durband, Paul's English master. It's on, it's on page 33 of the Salowich biography, again, not included in Tunin. Durbin says, Paul had had a bad break. His mother had died. He did go through a bit of a rough patch then. I think it shattered him a lot. Maybe it made him turn to other things like practicing his guitar and getting away from the school environment, which was very academic. But his mother's death certainly didn't have the effect of making him become noticeably difficult. I vividly remember on the day it happened, him coming into the class in room 32 and going to his desk, which was always used to be under a window. He was still very nice, very polite, and always softly spoken. Durbin remembers Paul coming in the day it happened, is what he says. Uh, now, we can't be sure that Dusty is correct that Paul was in fact sent to school the very same day though clearly he has a good memory for details what with the room number and paul's desk <laughs> location and such yeah uh but that is his testimony so it would have been nice if lewison had made an effort to determine how much time if any paul was given before returning to school especially if he's going to lean so hard on Paul just getting on with it afterward. It's remiss to report that Paul just got on with it, seemed unaffected, kept his head down, and pushed forward. 
to hit that over and over without acknowledging that that was how he was pressured to behave if not forced yeah right i mean paul might have been trying to just get on with it and trying to seem unaffected but clearly he did not succeed paul has also talked a few times about how traumatic seeing jim's grief over mary was he's gone so far as to call it the worst thing about the whole experience from anthology page 19 paul said my mother's death broke my dad up that was the worst thing for me hearing my dad cry i'd never heard him cry before it was a terrible blow to the family you grow up real quick because you never expect to hear your parents crying you expect to see women crying, or kids in the playground, or even yourself crying, and you can explain all that. But when it's your dad, then you know something's really wrong, and it shakes your faith in everything. Again, it's a little disappointing to see that summarized down to Lewis and paraphrasing him by saying, tough as it was to see or hear his dad crying. That's, I mean, is this publisher charging him by the word? I'm serious. Tough as it was to see or hear his dad crying, Paul got his head down and pushed forward. Well, that's also an extremely callous way to refer to a grieving child who is not allowed to grieve and who is now at least partially taking care of a suicidal, depressed father. Suicidal? I didn't read anything about that in TuneIn. Oh, um, no, it's not in TuneIn, but it's mentioned in many years from now, as well as Spitz and Salowich. Bob Spitz writes, this is a quote, Paul used to lock himself in the toilet and play the guitar, says Dill, who visited often in order to help Jim around the house. It was the only place he could disengage himself from the tragedy. Jim, who was himself heartbroken and threatening suicide, had nothing left in reserve for Paul. Dazed in a state of emotional shock, Jim depended entirely on his sisters, Jen and Millie, to keep the family afloat. Salowich writes, Jim McCartney, who had found his true love in Mary at the comparatively late age of 39, was beside himself with grief. All he wanted to do, he would tell anyone around him, was to join his wife on the other side. And in many years from now, Barry Miles writes, the boys went to stay with Jim's brother Joe and his wife Joan, while friends and relatives tried to calm their distraught father, whose first thought was to join his wife. Lewison didn't think that was important, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So to make the obvious connection, Jim is so distraught he's talking about suicide to the point that the family removes Mike and Paul from his care temporarily. Mm -hmm. Paul later says the worst thing was seeing his dad cry. Mm. Now, so I would bet money <laughs> he saw or heard or sensed, but is not comfortable telling us about something worse than typical crying mm -hmm. hmm. 
Like something scary. Like yeah. really scary. Yeah. Well, sure. Maybe he overheard Jim saying something like that. Yeah. Yeah, something scary. And if he did, how terrifying would that be for a child? Especially a child who's just lost one parent with zero warning. Iris Caldwell, who dated Paul for a bit after Paul broke up with Dot, said that Paul idolized Mary and added this. It was like losing a limb when she died and he'd had to rebuild himself. He felt he had a responsibility to his mother's memory to say to her, I'm still me. He had to show her he was a survivor. He couldn't let his mom or dad or brother see him going to pieces. He had to block her death out as a matter of self-preservation. It had been a bad age for him to lose her because it's a transition period. Suddenly you're a given responsibility. You realize there's more to life than you thought and that the world is not a very nice place. But you still need the reassurance of those parental figures in the background. He hadn't been able to put any pressure on his dad. In fact, his dad, for all his exuberance, was leaning on Paul. So Paul had had to prove that he was strong. That was from the Salowitch book, by the way. Not included in Tune In. But yeah, Iris and Paul dated in 1962. So Iris says that in this time period, six years after Mary's death, Jim was leaning on Paul. And that is one thing that would go a long way toward explaining why Paul was and is so protective of his dad. As we said, Iris's quote does not appear in TuneIn. However, Lewison did personally interview Iris Caldwell. But I guess he must have thought it wasn't important to ask her anything about Mary's death. There's no acknowledgement of the possibility that Jim was relying heavily on Paul in this aftermath. In fact, Lewison goes on to editorialize about what a great support system Paul and Mike had. Oh, yes. TuneIn actually already mentioned this very early on in the prologue. From page 22, Paul's Auntie Jin and Auntie Mill came over to clean, iron, and cook for them on alternate Monday afternoons. Okay, so they had an auntie over to help once a week, which is very nice. Yeah. In the section about Mary's death we're discussing right now, TuneIn describes it like this on page 156. The wider McCartney family, resolutely close-knit, comforting, and down-to-earth, did all they could to help, which was a lot. Paul and Mike had always loved their relatives, and from this point, these aunties, uncles, and cousins assumed an even greater role in their lives, the relationships rooting deeper than ever, strong and safe. That's infuriating. Using the word safe? This is not a safe environment for him emotionally or psychologically correct obviously wow the audacity of writing that mother dead with no warning not allowed to grieve suicidal father who hits him family's gonna be broke favorite auntie tells him to pull himself together and think of other people 
you know, it is good to point out that the relatives did pitch in with practical concerns, housework and cooking and such. But the way this is written implies that the entire family's handling of this crisis was ideal. Not just practically, but emotionally. That Paul and Mike couldn't possibly have asked for any more support in their grief. And that is misleading. Because, as we will now show, there are many troubling things about how the adults handled this situation. Which would undoubtedly have compounded Paul and Mike's grief and trauma. Mike tells a story in his Portrait of Paul essay about a conversation he and Paul had with Auntie Jin. He wrote, I remember one day Auntie Jin caught me and Paul moping around and looking very much down in the dumps, not a bit like the two happy young chappies we usually were. She hesitated for a second, as though not certain whether she should say anything or not before she told us, Listen, loves, I know you've gone through a fantastic time, and I know the way you're feeling, but you've got to try to think of other people. You've got to think of your father. I know this has been a great shock, but we all get great shocks, and we have to get over them. Now you'll really have to pull yourselves together. Mike says, This certainly helped to snap us out of our self-pity for a while, but the effect didn't last. <laughs> you think? That, that, didn't, that didn't do it, Mike? Pull yourselves together. That didn't, uh, that didn't solve it. Oh, Mike. Making a casserole and forbidding any discussion of the loss that just occurred might have been the best they could do under the circumstances. Yes, of course. But even if it was what they thought was in the best interest of the kids, it wasn't. Yeah. And so it would have had an effect whether or not it was intended that way exactly we've learned a lot of course in the past 70 years about how to help kids process grief and trauma and just about psychology in general yes this isn't an attack on the mccartneys and their behavior in the 1950s right okay but tune in wasn't written in the 1950s it was written in 2012 exactly and just because their behavior was relatively normal for the times doesn't mean it didn't have a profound effect on Paul and damage him. Yes, and Lewis is certainly aware of how treatment and awareness of mental health issues has significantly improved over the decades because he writes pretty freely about how if only John had had access to therapy and medication and could have been diagnosed with PTSD and is internalizing his grief. So he's aware. Self-pity. We're talking about a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. Yes. yes. You've got to think of other people. You've got to think of your father. Everyone gets great shocks and we have to get over them. Pull yourselves together. Don't be so selfish. Stop frowning. Right? They weren't even doing anything. It's not like <laughs> they were just yeah. being sad. I know. Oh my God. Stop reminding us that emotions exist. Again, I'm sure this was kindly meant. Yeah. But it's not safe. And it's not comforting. 
Do you miss me tonight? Are you sorry we drifted apart? Moving on to Julia. As we said before, the recounting of Julia's death and the immediate aftermath consists of seven full pages and 2,537 words of TuneIn. The first three paragraphs are about Julia's common-law husband, Bobby Dykins, getting arrested for drunk driving, going to jail, losing his job, Three paragraphs of that that conclude with this incident set in motion a sequence of events that reached a terrible calamity two weeks later. Tunin then reports Julia's death in cinematic detail. We're told why Julia was visiting Mimi that day, three potential walking routes Julia could have taken on her way back home, the bus number she was planning on, why her husband wasn't available to pick her up in his car, the sound of the screeching tires and thump of impact, witnesses' descriptions of her gingery hair blowing in the wind and the blood on her head, Mimi's carpet, slippers, and handbag, the name of the hospital her body was taken to. And that's all before we get to John. So we're not going to read the entire thing. Um, obviously, but we will share the most important parts, especially the ones that are mainly focused on John. John's feelings, John's later quotes, Lewison's interpretations of John's feelings, etc. Yeah. Starting on page 271. Mimi would recall John being out at the time, but when he came in and was told the news, he broke down saying, oh God, oh God. John's own recollection, when talking about it nine years later, was different. He remembered a policeman coming to the door and, as if in a film scene, asking for confirmation he was Julia Dykins's son. When John mumbled a yes, the constable replied, I'm sorry to tell you, your mother's dead. Bobby phoned for a taxi to get him and John to the hospital. As John would recall, he, Bobby, said, Who's going to look after the kids? And I hated him. Bloody selfishness. John gabbled hysterically all the way, but when they got to the hospital, unlike Bobby, he couldn't bring himself to see the body. John would say, It was the worst thing that ever happened to me. We'd caught up so much, me and Julia, in just a few years. We could communicate. We got on. She was great. I thought, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it. That's really fucked everything. I have no responsibilities to anyone now. The funeral was the following Monday, July 21st, at Allerton Cemetery. John never spoke of it publicly, and there's only one reliable witness to confirm he was in some way part of it. His cousin Lila, while not saying explicitly that John was or wasn't at the cemetery, would relate how she and John were at the cottage, 120A Allerton Road, afterward, for post-funeral sandwiches. She said, John and I just sat on the couch, him with his head on my lap. I never said a word. I can't even recall telling him I was sorry. There was nothing you could say. We were both numb with anguish. Tunin continues, the grief was not John's alone. In one instant, 
Four children had lost a mother, an estranged husband lost a wife, a man lost his partner, four women lost a loved sister, three nephews and a niece lost an aunt, and Liverpool lost one of its colorful characters. The fallout was widespread. Okay. Well, that's a very nice tribute. It is. We then get a couple paragraphs about uh, Julia's two youngest daughters, Julia and Jackie, them attending her funeral. Then there's an inquiry, something about a will, custody, etc. Two paragraphs of that as support for the fallout being widespread. Then we return to John. The fatal accident hardened irrevocably. John Lennon's view of the establishment, and especially the police. Coming to believe the driver who killed his mother was a drunk off-duty cop, his respect for authority, and especially the law, crumbled, and would only ever worsen. Where most people saw law and order, John would only see rank hypocrisy. The driver, Eric Clagg, was an off-duty cop. He was also a learner driver, and shouldn't have been on the road unaccompanied, and was suspended from the force because of it. But he was never charged with being drunk, and alcohol wasn't mentioned at the inquest. Though it's possible it was suppressed, it's also possible this cornerstone of John's lasting grudge against the police was set in misinformation. All right. So again, lots of detail. Mm -hmm. Bringing in John's later attitudes and behaviors, making connections. Mm Mm-hmm. Lewis doesn't offer any source for the assertion that where most people saw law and order, John would only see rank hypocrisy. Readers can make their own judgments about whether that's playing into a trope about being anti-establishment or if it's consistent with John's character at the time. I mean, I think it's definitely fair to say it made John more cynical. Yep totally agree yeah he said himself that it made him very bitter Mm -hmm. and i like that tunin acknowledges that evidence of the cops drinking may have been suppressed or maybe he was sober both are reasonable possibilities yeah agree i like that too well let's get back to the story okay you saw me crying in the chapel Alf seems to have made no attempt to contact his son, John Winston Lennon, the abandoned boy who was now broken. He had lost his mother at five and now lost her again with appalling finality at 17. And so soon after establishing a profound connection, it was the most tremendous and irreconcilable heartbreak. As he would put it, With customary, deafening economy, she had him, but he never had her. He was scarred for life, and more embittered, more cynical, more harsh, more uncompromising, more edgy, more volatile than ever. It was also the second death of a close loved one in three years, because that's all it was since his dear Uncle George his father figure, had gone at the age of 52. Life was still dealing John Lennon bad cards. 
as he would recall in 1980, it was a really hard time for me, and it just absolutely made me very, very bitter. The underlying chip on my shoulder I'd had as a youth was really big then. Being a teenager, and rock and roll, and sideboards, and art school, and mother being killed just as I was re-establishing a relationship with her, it was very traumatic for me. Accounts vary about John's reaction in the first weeks after the accident. Some have him burying his feelings, going quiet. Others have him raging and rampaging, drunk and vitriolic. The witnesses are reliable. Everyone agrees that he never talked about it. Internalize would have been the word had it existed. All right. Well, I think that was very well done. Very sensitive. Mm -hmm. He does a really eloquent job of encapsulating how terrible the timing of this was. Yeah. How Julia and John had just gotten closer and reestablished some trust, mm -hmm. which was desperately needed. Yeah. Also, he notes the horrifying fact that Alf, in his typically mm. useless way, yes, didn't bother to contact his son after Julia's death. Also, good that he brings up that Uncle George had died just three years ago, which is something that gets overlooked a lot. Mm -hmm. That's not often mentioned when discussing Julia's death, and it is important, and it would have impacted him. Definitely. And concludes with a very eloquent, useful quote from John. And overall, very, very empathetic to John, which is great. So I think that's very, very good. I agree. He says accounts vary, but the witnesses are reliable. So I think what he's saying is that John responded in a variety of ways. Mm hmm. Sometimes he was quiet, but a lot of other times he was externalizing with the uh, raging, rampaging, right. you know, yeah. drunken violence. All of those are examples of externalizing your pain and trauma. Yeah. Raging, rampaging, drunken, vitriolic is the opposite of internalizing. Hmm. Obviously, there is nothing critical of John in any of these seven pages. No judgment of how he reacted even of his subsequent lingering reactions right again it's not that i wanted any criticism of john of course but if you're going to take the time for paul to make sure that you quote how his brother said he was difficult to live with afterward but at the same time not talk about how paul was in pain at the time then it's inequitable can we hear more about the widespread fallout please okay it was mimi's role in life to have backbone and to show it the eldest of the five surviving stanley sisters the family matriarch after their mother's death john's surrogate mother from the age of five the reliable provider for husband nephew and lodgers now, the sole caring adult in John's life, she would continue to do her best and to protect him. But it was going to be a fiery old time, especially as he no longer had Julia's Blomfield Road bolt hole for days, evenings, weekends. 
thunderous verbal exchanges were inevitable. Mimi was going to have this damaged youth undiluted for good and for ill. Mm. So in Tunin's telling, Lewison's own words about Paul's um, reaction to Mary's death are that he seemed unaffected, that he just carried on, that he got his head down and pushed forward. Those are the only descriptions direct from Lewison. So from amidst the sea of quotes that is available regarding Paul's reactions to his mother's death, here are the words Lewison hand-selected in order to tell the story of Paul's reaction to Mary's death. Flippant, callous, far more affected, like a hermit, not very nice to live with, completely wrapped up in himself, didn't want people breaking in on his life. Those are all from Mike. There are two descriptions from Paul included in that section as well. Paul using the words terrible and logical and saying that he put a shell around himself. Terrible, logical, shell, wrapped up in himself, not nice to live with, hermit, callous, flippant. Mm, interesting. Let's compare those to the words that Lewison uses to describe John's reaction to Julia's death. These are all Lewison's own words. Abandoned boy, broken, scarred for life, tremendous and irreconcilable heartbreak, damaged, left with Mimi, the sole caring adult in his life. And John's cousin using the words numb with anguish. And also traumatized, which is John's word. It's pretty different. Lewison also writes that life was still dealing John Lennon bad cards, which serves to emphasize the gross unfairness of the tragedy and engender sympathy. And he calls 17, almost 18-year-old John a boy, which serves to emphasize his youth and innocence. These are choices we don't necessarily disagree with, but it's a choice he doesn't make in Paul's case for whatever reason. I mean, there's not a single word about Paul being scarred, broken, damaged, nothing. No, nope. nothing like that. Whereas Tunin harkens back to Julia's death frequently to illustrate the long-reaching effects that it had on John. Here are some examples. On page 281, Tony Carricker tells the story of finding out from John that his mother had died. And Tony comments, It did explain to me why he was being a lot more cruel than he had been before. On page 283, when John starts dating Thelma Pickles, we're told that she was the first female John allowed to get close after Julia's terrible death. 
and that Thelma remembered. He spoke of the pure shock of losing his mother. His pain was clear. On page 347, when John starts dating Cynthia, John was desperate for such assurance and stability, still only 12 months after the shattering ordeal of his mother's death. Page 415, when reporting Mimi and John's squabbles, Tunin tells us that both were still struggling to cope with Julia's terrible death. Page 348 tells us that John had an insecure and churned up mind in 1959. And as a result, he was himself a constant source of conflict and turmoil to everyone around him. On page 475, which is from the chapter on the year 1960, so John was 20 years old at the time. Money became John Lennon's song, one he always sang. A scarred boy who craved money and sex and was injecting passion into every performance. And on page 881, when Stuart Sutcliffe dies, Tunin tells us, John went out of control just like when Uncle George, his surrogate father, had died when John was 14, and when his mother was killed when he was 17. Everybody died on John. John deserved love and compassion and attention and therapy and all those things, too. Definitely. And Lewison agrees that John deserves those things, because on page 888, he writes, There would be quite a few more Lenin incidents to come. Enough to form the impression of a young man derailed by the deaths that kept afflicting him. In a time to come, he might have been diagnosed as suffering post-traumatic stress disorder. But in 1962, such terms didn't exist. Therapy wasn't offered, and the only pills were little white ones called prellies. He was fortunate to be in Hamburg, one of the few places in the world, the only one in his world, where he could be Lenin without landing himself in much trouble. Okay. And right. as, as we just read in Lewison's assessment of the immediate aftermath of Julia's death, he wrote that internalized would have been the word had it existed. So he's uh, at least familiar with the concept of internalizing one's pain since he concludes that this is what John is doing when he's being quiet or withdrawn. Yes, Lewison is clearly capable of applying this compassion to John and of identifying attitudes and behaviors in John's life that are probably attributable to his past because a person's childhood shapes them. But yet when Paul retreats and doesn't talk about his mother's death, Lewison interprets that as he just carried on, seemed unaffected, and got on with it. Paul has talked a lot about his mother over over the years. It's taken him a long time to talk about it publicly, but he's on the record quite extensively about how his mother's death affected him. Yeah, the fact that at the time he wanted to seem unaffected and probably at times convinced himself that well, that wasn't so bad. I'm fine now. Everything's fine. Doesn't mean that it was. Right! Or that he right. Was. 
John's method of coping might be more obvious and easier to spot, but it's not more important. It doesn't mean that it was more painful for him. Yeah. Exactly. You have two people that are experiencing similar, not the same, but similar traumas and responding in completely different ways because they are different people. Yes. Yeah, this is this is one of those aspects of them where they are very, very different. We also feel the need to say, just for the record, that this should not be seen as a trauma contest to measure who had it worse. No, not at all. The point is, they both dealt with a lot, and they both suffered. However, in this book, only one of them receives insight, compassion, and an honest representation of their personal adversity. In Beatle fandom and scholarship, it's pretty much accepted as fact that John had it worse, that he had an extremely traumatizing childhood. And while we agree that John's most outrageous acting out or destructive behaviors suggest trauma, for sure, I think we all probably also know someone in our lives who endured horrible traumas without mm -hmm. becoming violent, cruel, or volatile. Yeah. Worse behavior is not proof of worse pain. And lashing out is not the only way that people exhibit trauma. Some people exhibit trauma by developing control issues, trust issues, perfectionistic tendencies, difficulties with communicating their emotions or showing vulnerability, or by developing a deep need for approval and drive for success. Just saying. I'll never let you see The way my broken heart is hurting me I've got my pride and I know how to hide All my sorrow and pain I'll do my crying in the rain It's also interesting that Lewison doesn't really write much about the bond these maternal losses created between John and Paul. No, um, he doesn't. Lewison does give a nod to their bond on page 686. Tunin describes John and Paul becoming closer once Stu leaves the Beatles. And then it continues. John and Paul forged ahead with ambition, drive, dedication, humor, and so much more, even drawing mutual strength from being motherless. It was something only they could laugh at, and they enjoyed watching people squirm when innocent mentions of their mothers would be met with the blunt and straight-faced repost, she's dead. Lewison also includes a lovely quote from Paul on page 278. Paul and John shared tragedies of sudden severity. Paul lost his mother at 14 with literally no warning. John lost his at 17 the same way. Not that they spoke of it. As Paul says, we had a bond there that we never talked about, but each of us knew that had happened to each other. 
I know he was shattered, but at that age, you're not allowed to be devastated. And particularly as young boys, teenage boys, you just shrug it off. That's a lot of what we did. We had private tears. It's not that either of us was remotely hard-hearted about it. It shattered us. But we knew you had to get on with your life. I'm sure I formed shells and barriers in that period that I've got to this day. John certainly did. So that quote from Paul is the closest tune-in gets to acknowledging that Paul developed issues and fears about intimacy and expressing his emotions. Of course, it's kind of an aside because the quote comes in the middle of a section about the aftermath of Julia's death and John's reaction to it, and no further commentary is offered. So Tudin doesn't ignore their bond over losing their moms. It just doesn't give it much attention or any real analysis. Also, Paul used the word shattered there to describe his feelings about Mary's death. And Dusty Durbin used shattered about Paul too. Lewison uses that word about Mike in the passage about Mary. He wrote, Mike, who was especially close to his mother, burst into tears. A core part of him shattered irrevocably. I'm sure Mike was shattered. Like, I don't disagree with that. And maybe he even used that word himself at some point, though there's no footnote for it. But this is not a Mike McCartney biography. Why would Lewison choose to use more descriptive, more empathetic language for Paul's brother than he does for Paul? Hmm. There's another oversight in Tune In I want to mention, although in fairness, every Beatles book overlooks this. But Tune In makes absolutely no mention of the effect of Julia's death on Paul. Now, Obviously, we should prioritize its effects on John. Of course. Yeah, we're certainly not arguing that Julia's death had an equally devastating effect on Paul. And also, if Paul has never spoken publicly in any real detail about how Julia's death affected him directly, then I also understand that there's a limit to how much one can write about it. Sure. But... There's a very obvious connection between losing Mary and finding Julia so soon afterwards. We know enough, in my opinion, to draw some conclusions. We know Paul was enamored with Julia. He said at least once that he was in love with her. We know there was mutual affection between them and that they got along. We know that Julia was aware of Paul's loss and made an effort to give him a little extra TLC. And even if Paul has never explicitly said, you know, I transposed all my grief and loss into Julia, he has said numerous times that he lost his mother, then found John. So he's made the connection for us. It really shouldn't be hard to understand that Julia is part of that package. Multiple authors, including Lewis and Intune In 
have commented and speculated on how Paul was drawn to surrogate mother figures for years after his mother's death. For example, Tunin uh, highlights Paul's bond with Iris Caldwell's mom. Yep. On page 1098, he writes, It was six years since Paul's mother had died, and Vi Caldwell was one of the women who tried to fill the breach. Okay. And yet, no one takes the time to consider how traumatizing it would be for Paul to lose his first surrogate mum almost immediately after forming a bond with her. Well, and as we read earlier, Julia's death gets seven full pages of coverage in Tune In. And Lewison wrote the fallout was widespread, and he went out of his way to claimed that the entire city of Liverpool felt a loss mm. yet he can't <laughs> extend his sympathy to the other Beatles? To John's best friend? Well, Tunin does make the time to consider how Julia's death affected George Harrison on page 278 asked some years later to describe how he'd been able to help John cope with the loss of Julia Paul could remember nothing of the period at all it could be they didn't see much of each other in the summer of 1958. John was working at the airport, and Paul and George went on holiday together. But Louise Harrison would recall how she encouraged George to visit John at Mendips, quote, so he wouldn't be alone with his thoughts, unquote. The awful fact that both his mates had lost their mothers terrified George. The penny dropped that his might die any moment, too. Louise said, He'd watch me carefully all the time. I told him not to be so silly. I wasn't going to die. Oh. Well, that's nice. I like that note about George and the quote yeah. from his mom. Let's pour one out for George. Honestly. He's between the grief-stricken Paul and John again. Yeah. Neither of whom can talk about what they're going through. Right. That's a good quote from George's mom, and I'm glad it's here. I'm just wondering where Paul's perspective is as someone who actually knew Julia. Well, and as someone who was in love with her. Right. And who was grieving his own mother's death, his own mother's recent death. In 1997, to Barry Miles, Paul said, John and I were both in love with his mom. It just knocked him for six when she died. Now we were both in this, both losing our mothers. This was a bond for us, something of ours, a special thing. We have a first-hand account from little Julia, John's sister, about Paul and John's early friendship and Paul's relationship with Julia. This is from a BBC TV special in 2005. I remember him being round. He was round a lot. He liked my mother. My mother liked him. My mother cooked for him, felt sorry for him. I remember him at the gate. I remember him arriving with John. and We knew that he was John's special friend. Paul's mother had died when he was 14 of breast cancer. And that my mother would feed him with John when he came down. And when he went, she'd go, that poor boy's lost his mother. And that was ironic, wasn't it? Yes, and uh, the fact that she did die gave John and Paul 
an almost inseparable bond then, that they did really become, uh, come to rely on each other and grow into each other's pockets, I would say. Yeah, it's certainly, I would think from my point of view, only looking at it later, of course, uh, cement a friendship in a very deep way. I don't understand why you wouldn't put any of that in tune in. So, why does tune in skim over Mary's death? And why does Lewison fail to acknowledge any of these other traumas and dysfunctions in Paul's childhood and family life? Also, why does any of this matter? Well, this particular episode raised several issues. An incomplete or misleading portrayal of both Paul and Jim and Paul and Mike, and the perfunctory coverage of Mary's death with almost no concern for the tremendous, obvious, verifiable emotional fallout it created within Paul McCartney. Learning about a person's childhood, as we said in the introduction, is very helpful in understanding what motivates them, what scares them, and what sometimes compels them to act or think in certain ways. It doesn't just allow you to sympathize with them, it gives you a deeper appreciation for why. This can help explain how certain conflicts arise, why each player feels whatever way they do about it, etc. And in this case, it also can give a deeper appreciation of a person's art. On the other hand, a superficial or whitewashed representation of a subject's childhood leads to a shallow characterization. A person with deeply buried traumas, repressed anger, difficulty showing vulnerability, and other unfulfilled emotional needs is going to present differently than a spoiled, overly confident, manipulative, smooth talker with a fundamental need to be noticed. The former is a flawed, relatable human. The latter is a cartoon villain. If we believe Paul McCartney had a perfect upbringing, absent of any hardship, then we expect him to be perfect. In Beatles lore, he always has been, and still is, positioned as perpetually more fortunate than Lennon. Things came easy, we're told, to this naturally talented boy, from a loving, stable, two-parent home that forever supplied positive attention and complete and total support. The Paul of TuneIn isn't real, and so he isn't relatable. We are designed to resent him. This does not excuse bad behavior or failures of character on Paul's part, 
But if we don't know anything of his scars, fears, resentments, and hidden struggles, we can't know him. And if we don't know him, we can't appreciate or respect him for the complex, flawed, real person that he is. Every emotional outburst will be viewed as a tantrum rather than the sudden overwhelming need to have his normally repressed feelings seen and validated. Every concealed emotion will be viewed as manipulation or deception rather than a matter of self-preservation. A biography that reported all of John Lennon's bad behavior and negative personality traits without acknowledging any of his childhood stressors would be unthinkable, egregiously inadequate, and, in our opinion, unfair. Humanizing the subject of a biography is vital if we are to relate or empathize, if we are to care about them at all. For good or ill, we need to know what makes a person tick, what drives them, and what terrifies them, in order to get a sense of who that person is. In Tune In, we feel Paul's relationships with both his father and his brother are misrepresented. Jim comes off as a kindly, hapless victim of Paul's wily strategies. Mike comes off as the resentful, mistreated younger sibling. We feel that Mary's death and Paul's role in his immediate family as protector, provider, and bulwark is undervalued and underemphasized. These roles took a toll on Paul and his emotional development, and Tunin shows no appreciation of that. Jim's physical abuse will unwittingly teach young Paul how men are entitled to treat their loved ones and shape Paul's expectations of how he should be treated by those he loves. Paul's method of coping with this abuse, denial, rationalization, forgiveness, and continued loyalty will have negative ripple effects on both his behavior and mental health. Tunin's failure to so much as acknowledge this difficult aspect of Paul's relationship with his father, his primary role model, is, in our opinion, negligent to the point of making Tunin's characterization of him effectively useless. How will this flawed characterization carry into other facets of the Beatles story? Join us next time to find out where TuneIn goes from here. How do Lewison's writing choices continue to shape the story as he sees it? And what do Daphne and Phoebe think about it all? <laughs> we know you're wondering. Don't touch that dial. The sun is fading away. That's the end of the day. As the Julie turns to moonlight, I'll be on my way. Thank you for listening to Another Kind of Mind. We hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast series, Fine Tuning, an examination of Mark Lewison's Tune In. 
For supplemental material on fine-tuning, visit our website at anotherkindofmind.com. There you will find our word count graph, related lists and photos, notes on all of our episodes, and a complete playlist of the many fabulous songs featured in fine-tuning. Want to discuss fine-tuning with other ACOM listeners? Got thoughts, questions, disagreements? Marriage proposals? You can find and follow us on social media. We also have a discussion group on the old Facebook that listeners can request to join. You can also email us at acompodcast at gmail.com. Did you know Another Kind of Mind has a merch store? Well, we do. Visit TeePublic and search ACOM. We got shirts, we got bags, mugs, all kinds of cool gifts just in time for the holidays. But the best gift you could give to us would be to spread the word about fine tuning and recommend us to others. Like Yay. and share us on social media. Post Yay. our episodes in your online forums and chats. Yeah. Send links to your friends, your enemies, your world <laughs> leaders. ACOM will put candy in your basket. Is what, what we're, we're saying. saying. <laughs>